Okay, uh, we're going to continue tonight in the Sermon on the Mount. Last week, we started a lesson that was supposed to cover the six, or start to cover the six moments where Jesus said, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And I titled last week, You Have Heard It Said. So if you're jumping in on this and you'd like to hear the first couple of, of those six, look up the sermon, You Have Heard That It Was Said. Uh, I told you at the end of that, that my plan this week was to take the next four, the final four of those six, and put them in a lesson titled, But I Say Unto You. But that's not gonna happen. Um, and the reason that's not gonna happen is because as I started to work on the first one and wrestle with it earlier in the week, I just couldn't get past it. I couldn't get into the, sec to the next one and the next one and the next one. And so therefore, um, I am going to stay with the very, the third of the six of those moments where Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say unto you, uh, and I'm going to subtitle this tonight, what God has joined together. And I do that because that is a phrase that Jesus will use in another passage we'll go to tonight in regards to marriage, what God has joined together. Of course, let no man put asunder or let no man separate is the phrase often used. We'll read that in a little while. And that is because the third moment in which Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say unto you, involves divorce. And it is one of the most argument, one of the most uh, argued passages from the Sermon on the Mount as to what Jesus meant. And so we're going to get into that in a little bit. I want to lay that out, this out with a, a few thoughts. Um, marriage and divorce is, is kind of a, a, a difficult subject to discuss in mixed company because not everybody's affected. Not everybody's married in any given room. Not everybody's been divorced in any given room or everyone's been divorced in any given room. It just really, it's just one of those things. It's not as if you're getting up and preaching on the cross. You get up and preach on the cross, you can talk to everyone about what Jesus has done on the cross and it's relevant to them. Get up and talk about marriage and divorce, it's not. The task of the teacher is much like the task of the student. Mine out the truth wherever you are in the text. And so what I like to do is find a way to take these moments in the text and shine a spotlight on something bigger than the text. So that's easy to do in regards to we shine the spotlight on Jesus or we shine the spotlight on the kingdom. Can we look at a text on divorce or a text on marriage and find a kingdom principle? Of course, the answer is yes, because the Sermon on the Mount is full of kingdom principle. It's what Jesus is doing, is giving us the fullness of this idea of how God would act on the earth. Um, so marriage, divorce doesn't affect everybody, even in this room, and it won't affect everybody that watches or listens to this in the future. But Jesus uses the principle behind it to speak a greater truth. So I'm going to try to do the same thing. And that's use the principle behind the text. Here's something to remember. Whenever you listen to Jesus talk about these things, he's speaking of them not in an American context, not in a 21st century context, not in a Western world context. And I know that's obvious. You go, of course he's not. But it's not, we don't, we don't treat that a lot of times that way. We, we say we believe that, but then we don't always treat it as if we believe that. Remember, it's first century. It's a Roman world. It's a Jewish world. When Jesus speaks of divorce or marriage in that context, he's speaking in the Jewish world 
or the Roman world. He's speaking in something they can understand. And so one of the things we have to do is dispense of our ideas we bring to the table and start to try to pick up his ideas. And that's how Jesus takes their context and then addresses hearts. Another thing, this lesson is essential. Um, it's one that when I teach or preach the Sermon on the Mount, I don't like to dig into. But as I've wrestled it this week, I came to a conclusion that I had never really landed on before. And that is that if Jesus did not challenge their ideas about divorce, because this is really not about marriage, this is about divorce. If Jesus didn't challenge their ideas about divorce, then he could not reveal to them that they are the bride of Christ. So hear that again. The book of Revelation closes with Jesus showing all of us that we are the bride of Christ. If we have erroneous ideas about marriage and divorce, then we cannot get excited about being the bride of Christ. How could I get excited about an institution that I either don't know anything about or that I have ideas about that, that mean nothing? And so when Jesus reveals at the end of the book of Revelation that the church is the bride, if we have faulty ideas about husbands and wives, about divorce and marriage, how can we be confident in being the bride? We might say, well, this is a terrible idea. I've seen nothing but bad marriages. And I've seen how husbands treat their wives. And I've seen how wives treat their husbands. And if I'm the bride of Christ, then what does that have to say about my heavenly husband, Christ? And so it's necessary for Jesus to go to work on the context. It's necessary for Jesus to go to work on the stuff that is weighing down the audience of his day. So I want to read one verse from Matthew 5. And, and then we're going to read a little bit from the Old Testament as well. So Matthew 5, 31, Jesus says this, Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Whoever, it has been said, there it is. Remember, it has been said, but I say. So the front half of the lesson, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. This is what you've heard. You have heard that if a man wants out of his marriage, all he has to do is give a certificate of divorce to his wife. Literally, if a man decides he wants the marriage to end, we're not talking American context. We're not talking 21st century, because this is why I said this. First century, Judaism, Roman world, a world with Mosaic law as their foundation. Jesus says, you've heard it said in that context that if you want out of a marriage, all you gotta do is get a certificate to divorce your wife, then you can move on from that marriage. My question is, where did Jesus get that? This is what we try to do each week, is say, Jesus said, you've heard it said, where did Jesus hear that, all right? Where Jesus heard that, is Deuteronomy 24. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse number one. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, he puts it in her hand, and he sends her out of his house when she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. Let me stop there. Hear that again. This is in the Torah, Deuteronomy 24.1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes 
because he found something unclean in her, then he can write a certificate of divorce, put it in her hand, send her out of his house. So what's the Torah allow a man to do? If the man finds reason to move on from his wife, he can write a certificate of divorce, hand it to her, and the marriage is annulled. It doesn't matter if they've been married two days, two years, or two lifetimes. The Torah gave the man the right, according to Deuteronomy 24.1, that if he found some uncleanness, he could write her certificate of divorce. Now let me, can you imagine what had happened to the interpretation of that by the time Jesus came along? Because if you take this loosely, and believe me, the religious world will do whatever it has to do to take loosely what it needs and to take strictly what it dislikes. We're not new in that. That's, that's as old as time, right? So hear it again. If it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he had found something wrong with her. So if in his eyes, she's not as favorable as the next woman he sees, he can divorce her. If she changes the way she looks, and that's not what he likes, he can give her a certificate of divorce. If after he gets married, he finds out that she's not as good as he thought she was, or at least as good as he expected her to be, he can write her a certificate of divorce. Not as good a cook as I'd like, get a different wife. Not as good, doesn't clean the way I want her to clean, get a different wife. Uh, changed her hair, refused to change it back, get a different wife. I mean, as petty, there was, there was literally examples in the, rabbinic, in, in, in the rabbinical history of divorce for almost every possible, I was about to say plausible, but it's, <laughs> they're not plausible, but every possible imaginable thing that a man could look at and go, uh, I don't like the way she looks, I don't like the way she acts, I don't like the way she talks, I don't like the way she's changed, he could get rid of her. Now, what does Jesus say? You have heard it said that if a man wants to divorce his wife, he can give her a certificate of divorce. You know that what's coming is, but I say unto you. All right, which means you've heard it said, but obviously there's something wrong with what's been said. What's been said? You can divorce her if she doesn't please you. You can divorce her if you find some sort of uncleanness. Are we back? Go to Matthew 9 because I want to show you another moment before we do the but it was said. I want to show you another moment in the text of Jesus in which marriage and divorce is dealt with. Matthew 19, verse 1. It came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Great multitudes followed him and he healed them there. That's really just an introvert couple of verses to try to set the story. The Pharisees came to him and testing him and saying to him, this is always a key right here. When, when they come to Jesus testing him, then they're, in, they're watching Jesus act differently than what they think the Torah says. So they want to test to see what he'll say. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Where'd they get that? Deuteronomy 24. Because a man could go, I don't, I don't know. I'm not happy with her. I'm done with her. Can, that, can we do that? And Jesus answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said... For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. 
Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. I want to pause here and I want to show you what Jesus does because it's actually pretty remarkable. They come to Jesus and say, is it okay if a man just divorces his wife for whatever? They get that from Deuteronomy 24 because they're having a very loose interpretation. Guy's not happy whether he can divorce her. Jesus ignores Torah. He goes way back to Genesis. Technically, that's in Torah. He ignores Mosaic law. He goes all the way back to Genesis to the garden. And he picks up marriage as a definition as given by God to Adam and Eve. And he says, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and joins his wife. The two shall become one flesh. Whatever God joins, don't let any man separate because the two aren't two. They're now one. And then they said, now they bring the Torah back into it. Then why did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put the woman away? And Jesus said, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Okay, so Jesus runs all the way back to the garden and says God gave man and woman to one another. Man leaves his father's mother, joins to his wife, to become one flesh. Don't let any man separate that. Okay, then why is divorce allowed in Torah? Legit question. I mean, if Genesis says man and wife, woman should stay together, then why does God allow them to divorce? So Jesus answers and says, because God knows the hardness of man's heart. He knows that man's heart isn't what it should be. What's the whole point of the new covenant if not to circumcise hearts? That, that text falls back. That comes back again and again and again in the Old Testament, much less the New, because the Old Testament keeps prophesying there's going to come a day when God's going to circumcise your heart. God's going to remove, Ezekiel said this, God's going to remove your stony heart and give you a heart of flesh. In other words, God's going to take your hard-heartedness and He's going to change you. But the problem is, the, and I've told you this before, the law can't change people's hearts. It can change people's attitudes. It can change people's actions. But it can't change people's hearts. That's why we don't preach the law for righteousness, because it won't make a man righteous if he does it. Any more than, it, than, than if you didn't do it, you're righteous, then you didn't do it, now you're unrighteous, and then you're righteous. It's just this roller coaster back and Can't work because it can't do an internal transformation. So Jesus says, if you want to know the truth about marriage, God gave it in the beginning so a man and a woman could become one. And he says, and then that shouldn't be split. Well, why does Moses let us split it? Because God knows your hearts are hard. God knows you're a stubborn people. God knows that at your core, you aren't what... The law gets you to aspire to be. That's not the end of the story, though. It was permitted for you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, that's not the way God wanted it to be done. Nine, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. We're not going to worry about the wording on this yet because it's actually in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to get to the wording on it in the Sermon on the Mount version, okay? So... Don't think I'm ignoring nine. I am, but it's only because we're going to do it in five. Ten is where we're going. His disciples said to him, look at this. If such is the case of a man with a wife, then it's better not to marry. What a verse. <laughs> Let me just think about this for a minute. His disciples hear him say, in the beginning, God gave man and woman one another. God put them together. Don't let any man separate them. Moses actually let you guys separate because he knew your hearts were hard. But the reality is, is that it shouldn't happen and it ought to be viewed as adultery if it does. And the disciples' response is not, wow, man, you've really upped the ante on marriage. No, their, their response is, we'd be better off not to get married. Do you know what that says? They are so infiltrated 
by the cultural idea that if you are unhappy in marriage, you can get out of it. What's that sound like? This is amazing. This lesson is going to be incredible because it's one of the most timely messages in which Jesus deals with a subject in his context that speaks volume to the subject in our context, and they're not even in the same context. It's incredible because the mentality of the disciples in Matthew 19 is that this is too hard to ask a man to stay with a woman he's not pleased with or that lets him down or that's just not as pretty as the next gal or that changes over time. You can't ask that man to commit to her forever. This is insanity. We would be better off to never marry at all than to marry under this kind of restriction. Can you, can you believe this comes out of their mouth? I know. And whenever I read this verse, I think this is incredible that that's the world they live in. But then I try to put myself in the context of the world they live in. And, try, and this verse right here helps me get to the bottom of why Jesus even bothers with this text. Because if we're on our way to Revelation where the church is the bride of Christ, if this is the way we think of marriage, we are never going to respect being the bride of Christ. Because marriage doesn't mean in, in that context what it means to us in a covenant context. Because in their context, they looked at it like it's a pitiful request for you to put this kind of a burden on people that they can't get out of their commitments that they have to actually commit on a permanent basis, on a lifelong basis. And I hope you remember that what we're trying to do when we unpack the Sermon on the Mount is not throw these standards up to you and go, ha, 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 you're not going to be able to live up to it. You're crushed beneath the weight. You need God's grace. Instead, we're trying to show you how God acts. We're trying to show you how God loves his enemy, how God treats his marriage, how God treats those uh, who, who mistreat him and how he responds to the world. It's, it ought to be obvious because the first words of Jesus' mouth on the cross are, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Only God could say that. Only the king that can actually live the Sermon on the Mount could say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. When he's saying it over those who are persecuting him and those who are destroying him. So the hard heart, Jesus said, Moses let you do this because of the hardness of your heart. The hard heart wanted nothing to do with a union that could not be easily dissolved. The hard heart wants what the hard heart wants. The heart wants what the heart wants. I got to go be me, be true to myself, you know, find my way. And while there is some utility in us having the idea that I need to be true to me, it should become subservient to the heart transformation that happens when I meet Christ. It's not always about me go find what makes me happy or what satisfies me. And that's the challenge in approaching marriage through a different lens, all right? I don't for a moment wanna pitch marriage as what they did in Matthew 19, 10, which was really the path to misery. Because that was the disciples' response was, my gosh, none of us ought to get married. I mean, if this is the way this is going to be, forget it. Marriage is awful. You know what? There's a lot of people that think that way, though. Like, if I didn't think there was any way out of this, oh, my gosh, I wouldn't get into this. Um, you know, we got to have an exit strategy before we get in, just in case we get in and we both are in hell. We got to find a way to get out of this. And that mentality has to change, at least according to Jesus. So now go back. Now you're ready for, but I say to you, because you've heard it said. 
that you can divorce your wife and just give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, this is Matthew 5.32. Whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Okay, well, here we go. You have heard it said that you can divorce her, just give her a certificate of divorce. Boom, she's good to go. I say to you that unless it has to do with sexual immorality, and the word here is pretty ambiguous on sexual immorality, really falling into... Um, we don't know. It's, it's truly ambiguous. It's one of those words that it's kind of hard for us to land on. And so, but we know it has to do with sex outside of the covenant of marriage, whatever that looks like. And so Jesus is stating that marriage ought to be respected to a higher level. Now, there's a translation issue here that I think if we clean it up, it will help us land where we need to land. The phrase he causes her to commit adultery is just straight up a bad translation. It's a little better, a little more correct to say, you make it appear that she is an adulteress. It's not as if a person can cause someone else to commit adultery. But you can make it appear that the individual is an adulteress would be more correct. And frankly, no one listening would have agreed with Jesus. And let me tell you why they would not have agreed with Jesus. Jesus just said, whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sex, sexual immorality, sexual promiscuity, adultery, causes that woman to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. They wouldn't have bought it because under Torah, if you commit adultery, you don't get divorced. You die. Remember that? There's no codicil in the law for, oh, if your wife cheats on you, well, then you can get a divorce. Or if there's sex outside of marriage, okay, you can get a divorce. No. God said, if there's adultery, somebody dies. Everybody involved in the adultery dies. So when Jesus then says, you've heard it said, you can get a divorce, just write a certificate. But I say to you that only adultery will qualify for a divorce. No one would have agreed because that's not holy enough. What would be truly holy is if it's adultery, then she dies. Everything else, you can just get a divorce. Do you realize what Jesus has done? He did two things and he did them very subtly. One, he got rid of capital punishment for adultery. And if you wonder if he actually lived that out, go read John 8 where they bring a woman caught in the act of adultery to him, and he doodles in the sand and says, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. And Torah said she should die. But Jesus removes capital punishment in the midst of that because he is bringing in a new kingdom. He's ushering in the way of the Father. And so he says, I don't, we're not going to kill him for adultery. Goes, that would be a divorceable offense. The other thing that Jesus subtly does is that he says, if you send a woman away, you cause everybody else to think she's an adulteress because the only reason you could send her away is if she cheated on you. You go, oh no, I'm sending her away because she got fat. Which you can interpret Deuteronomy 24.1 to mean. Oh, I'm sending her away because she can't cook. I'm sending her away because she doesn't make me happy. No, Jesus says, you don't get to send her away for that. If you send her away, you make it look like she cheated. You go, wait, that's... No one now would ever send her away if it means by sending her away, I made it look like A, she cheated, and B, she cheated on me. And boom, Jesus brings the level up in this text. 
So it's not a scripture that Jesus is throwing out there to condemn the crowd. It's a scripture Jesus is throwing out there to elevate the sanctity of marriage, to go marriage is way more important than you're in a bad mood, you decide you're going to move on. Marriage is way more important than she's letting me down or she's disappointed me. He goes, fellas, it's, if you move in that circle, it's off limits for you to just decide you don't want covenant. If you, don't, if, if you remove that woman from marriage, which by the way, in the context of the first century, the woman didn't have the right to do, only the man did. Torah doesn't give woman a rights for divorce. So there's no moment in the Torah where a woman gets to say, oh, you know what? I'm done with you. I'm writing you a certificate of divorce. So that didn't exist at all. So again, context is king. We, don't, we can't prop fully understand everything Jesus is saying in our own context. But most certainly in theirs, women, no rights to divorce, men only. Jesus elevating that so that men will see it differently. No one listening would have agreed with Jesus. Jesus shows that for God, marriage is honored above all. And I want you to remember that the Sermon on the Mount is really just trying to show you how God acts inside of his kingdom. Now, let me show you why marriage needed elevated. Well, in, in some ways that's easy enough. Because if men were able to divorce because the wife had lost favor in their eye, that means that if he saw her and it, it was let down by her in any way, then he could divorce her. Okay. Jesus says, but I say to you, which tells me that's not the heart of God. However you interpret Deuteronomy 24.1 can't be the heart of God because Jesus comes along and goes, no, that's not the way this works. And let me tell you why it's not the way this works. Because your father in heaven is also your heavenly husband. See, the allegory swings. So he's not just your father and you're his son and his daughter. He's the heavenly husband and you're the bride. You are the spouse. So the, the, the lowness with which you're treating marriage is reflective of how you feel of the lowness of the marriage that you have with your heavenly father. That's why in Matthew 19.10, the disciples say, man, it'd be better off if we didn't get married at all because their understanding was that you should be able to get out of covenant. And I, I believe this is because they had misunderstood the heart of their heavenly husband. And I think that's why Jesus had to come to show us a higher way in everything. So what I want to do is I want to take you to an Old Testament passage, and there's several that we could go to. But I want to take you to Ezekiel because there's a moment in Ezekiel. In, in fact, I was very tempted to do like a 60-something verse run through Ezekiel 16. But okay, I, you know, we've been down this road before. We know that's not possible. So we just picked a few spots from Ezekiel 16. And here's why Ezekiel 16. It's a passage in which God replays Israel's marital story to God. And he shows her how he found her. Like you were, you were nothing. And I found you and I brought you in. And I took care of you. And I, I raised you. It catalogs their marriage. And then it catalogs Israel and Judah cheating on God. With adultery after adultery after adultery. And it's an interesting chapter because it also brings in children, which are the offspring of marriage. It brings in the stranger. It brings in the outsider, the neighbor. And then it, it, it shows God getting more and more angry. I, I can't encourage you enough to read Ezekiel 16, okay? And God starts to stir his wrath over and over and over and over. And we're going to work through some of these passages. And then where it ends is almost unbelievable. It's sublime to watch what God does in Ezekiel 16. And when we read this, read it with the idea that God is all about elevating marriage to a higher place and to a higher plane. And also read it with the idea 
of something like Matthew 19.10 where the disciples go, oh, gosh, this is a marriage. Nobody ought to get married because their ideas were so low on marriage that they didn't hold it in the regard in which Jesus did. All right, so here's a few. Ezekiel 16.6. This is God talking about Israel. When I passed by you, I saw you struggling in your own blood. I said to you in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you in your blood, live. I made you thrive like a plant in the field, and you grew, matured, and became very beautiful. Your breasts were formed, your hair grew, but you were naked and bare. This is a a literary device for you grew into maturity, and I brought you in as my own. So you went from baby to child to young woman to woman. And he said, I've walked you along the whole way. Okay, so this, is, this is God sort of nurturing and maturing his beautiful bride. And then we move forward. Give me verse 8. When I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed, your time was the time of love. She's come to, she's come to sexual maturity. She's come to the point where a woman marries and has children. We're using the allegory of a man and a wife as God over Israel. So I spread my wing over you, and I covered your nakedness, and I swore an oath to you, and I entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine, says the Lord God, and uses Jehovah Adonai. I I brought a covenant over you. I spread my wings over you. I protected you. I took the role of taking care of you. My banner over you is a covenant over you. I covered up all of your nakedness. Now, from here, it starts to describe what she looks like. It starts to describe her clothing. It starts to describe the home that she lives in, all of the beauty that God has given her. And then verse 15. But you started to trust in your own beauty, and you played the harlot. Because of your fame and poured out your harlotry on everyone passing by who would have it, you took some of your garments and adorned multicolored high places for yourself, You played the harlot on them. Such things should not happen, nor be. You have also taken your beautiful jewelry from my gold and my silver, which I'd given you, and you made for yourselves male images, and you played the harlot with them. You took your embroidered garments and covered them, and you set my oil and my incense before them. My food, which I gave you, the pastry of fine flour, oil, and honey, which I fed you, you set before them as a sweet incense, and so it was, says the Lord God. Moreover, you took your sons and your daughters, whom you bore to me, to these you sacrifice to them to be devoured. Were your acts of harlotry a small matter that you have slain my children and offered them up by causing them to pass through the fire? Now this, is, this works its way through Israel's actual history, but notice the marriage covenant that God has entered into with Israel. I'm, I'm highlighting this because I want to show you the cheating. It's the obvious adultery. This is obvious grounds for divorce. This is God should leave Israel. God should abandon Israel. God should abandon Judah. And we know that there are moments where Israel feels as if God has throughout her history. But I want to make some comments about it because I don't, I, I don't know the way to elevate marriage in people's eyes. Um, I have some things to say about marriage because I'm... 26 and a half years into marriage, so I can say something of success, um, you know, but I don't think anybody has all the answers, and I don't think anybody knows what works for that couple or that couple or that couple, and I think we all try, 
but I don't claim to land on the answers and the Bible's not a manual. You know, it's not a manual for raising kids. It's not a manual for successful marriage. All we really do is try to reflect in our relationships what we have with our Heavenly Father, our Heavenly Husband. That's what we try to reflect in how we raise our kids. It's what we reflect in how we try to treat our spouse. But it seems to me that God in Ezekiel 16 is showing us what a good husband does in that he invests in his wife. And I don't just mean money. He takes care of her. He enters into covenant with her. Now, I'm doing all of this in context of where you know we're going with the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus goes, hey, man, marriage ought to be so high that the only thing that you can do that you can get out of it over is adultery, sexual promiscuity. And it's put up or shut up for God. I mean, you can't say to people, oh, yeah, you got to stay in marriage unless there's sexual promiscuity, unless you've stayed in a marriage. That's the whole point of the Old Testament is that God stays in the marriage. He stays in when it's not easy. He stays in in the midst of difficulty. He stays in, and Israel's actually a harlot. It's not just a, a couple problems here and there, but she's actually running around on God. And so God invests. So I want to speak a couple of things towards marriage. I, I think, first of all, we need to start to see marriage as an investment. And I don't mean financially. I mean an investment in our own future and in the future of the person that God put us with. Because when, we, when the two become one, and the Bible says the two become one flesh, that's bringing everything one person has and everything another person has and putting those things together so that the end result is a completion and a perfection that could not have been achieved without having met that other person. And so marriage is an investment and the receiving of your partner's investment. And so you're giving yourself, which is a gift, and you're receiving of your partner, which is a gift. I think, I don't think this is why we have such a high divorce rate. We have an insanely high divorce rate. I'm not saying this is why, but I'm saying this isn't helping, okay? I think we need to rethink how we teach people about marriage from day one. Probably every marriage represented in this room and probably every marriage represented by those watching or listening started with a list of vows. We stood there and made promises to one another, which by the way, is completely unlike we came to Christ. Like when you came to Jesus, you didn't come forward and go, I wanna give my heart to Christ. God, I promise to do this and this and this and this and this for you. Because the truth is, none of your promises matter to God being faithful to you. You see, God didn't put you in a list of vows in order to commit himself to you. You received salvation as a gift, which means you received the marriage that you have with our heavenly husband as a gift. And he received you as a gift. He didn't make a list of vows and you make a list of vows and then you and he compare those vows throughout your marriage to make sure you're living up to those vows. And again, I'm not saying it's why we have a high divorce rate, but it sure didn't help that we got off on the foot of legalism because that's exactly what we're doing with marriage. We're getting off on the foot of legalism, which is I promise this and this and this and this and this and this and this. And a lot of the stuff being promised, people don't keep for five minutes outside of their marriage vow or five days or five years. They don't, they, they, we struggle because 
All we've done to define marriage is a list of rules, regulations, and instructions by which two people sign up and agree to. And when they stop agreeing to them, they're allowed to get out of it. If they mutually stop agreeing to them, then they can get out really fast. Because it's not as if they're binding, it's they're, they're vocal. What if marriage were treated not as a list of vows we take over another person, but that when we went into marriage, and if you need something to say, which by the way, you don't have to say anything. I've married hundreds, if not thousands of people in, in, in my life. And I can tell you that legally there are no magic words like, oh, you got to say this or got to say. This. In fact, until you sign that piece of paper, the state's not even going to recognize you're married anyway. So whatever you say isn't the thing. But what if we treated it not as if a list of vows to make, but as if we had something to offer, something to invest in someone else. And we had, and we received that individual as an investment in us. And then whatever we bring, because you bring everything, you bring you, you bring your dreams, you bring your hopes, you bring your pains, you bring your past, you bring your guilt, you bring your fear, and you put it in your spouse. And that's really what you do. And if you don't do it, you'll pay the price for not doing it. Because what you don't put in them, you keep in you. And then it sneaks up on them like a little monster in the back of your marriage because you didn't give it to them. And then it's a secret. And then it's dark. And then there's hell to pay. And I've counseled a lot of couples where there was little monsters running around that were never invested in their spouse. And now we're fighting them over because we didn't trust the ground we were planting into. We thought that marriage was about making some promises instead of investing our best and our worst in our spouse. So we put everything we are in them. It's risky. Man, it's risky. It's so risky because you might put everything in there and they still leave you and they hurt you and they abuse you and you don't get it back. And this is why we tilt towards children in marriages. We tilt towards our kids over our spouse because our kids share our blood and our kids, we invested a bunch of love and security and attention and time and dreams and hopes in and a lot of skint knees, and they're way less likely to betray us because they have a part of us in them. And so a lot of parents invest in their children over their spouse because it's safer. But there's no fruit of the Spirit in investing in your children like there is investing in your spouse. Because you are not one flesh with your child. You share blood with your child, but you are one flesh with your spouse. If we took that to mean what it says and say what it means, we might look at this investment as putting something in the soil of our spouse and then cultivating it preciously and then receiving a return on it and looking at it as if it really matters. We accepted and we gave. And here's the crucial part. If you want to see a return in another human being, you got to risk enough to put everything into it, not just half of it, not just part of it. There's no such thing as a fruit that grows where a seed did not die. Remember what Jesus said, John 12, 24. Surely I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it, re- it produces much grain. The, the Greek word there, it produces much fruit. Okay, you want fruit in your marriage? You want fruit in your relationships? You're going to have to invest enough that what you bring to the table dies in that person. It doesn't exist outside of that person. It only reproduces in that person. That's the investment God made in you. What do you think Calvary is? 
It's God deciding that if he is going to live in you as a resurrected man, he's going to die for you first. And you made the same decision when you came to Christ. You said, I want to follow resurrected Jesus. And the only way to get to a resurrection is to go through a cross. So I'm going to put the old me into Christ. And I'm going to let Christ crucify the old me. I'm going to let him take the old dreams and the old desires and the old sin and the old failure. And I'm going to bury it in Christ. And I'm going to come out of the waters of baptism in a brand new life. But I will not be the same person as I follow Jesus that I was when I started following Jesus. I will be baptized into his life. That's marriage. That's why two become one flesh. Because two people brought what they were and they deposited it into the ground together. So that the fruit that comes out of that marriage is the byproduct of what happens in that moment. Now children are in this passage as well. In fact, God said you sacrificed your children... And that's a, there's incredible imagery there. And in, in fact, it's so deep, I don't even know how, how much I want to get into what it looks like to put your children through the fire. But I will say this. Children are offspring. Children are not fruit. We're guarding children a lot of times as if they are the greatest thing marriage produces. And I disagree. You can have kids without marriage. You can produce a pretty good kid without marriage. I mean, marriage isn't the, the seed of their being life. But the you that comes out of the other side, the you that grows in marriage, is the product of the union of two souls. Your children is a product of sex. What they become is a product of their raising. Then the decisions they make are theirs. My point is this. We're in a culture in which we are guarding our children more than we're guarding our marriages. And this is why we have empty nest syndrome. The kids all get raised, go off to college, husband and wife look at each other and don't know who they are. Because all they did for the last 15 years was drive to practice and do homework and wash clothes and have family dinner. But they forgot who that person was across the room and they're not real happy with them because they're older and they're different and they've changed. Because they put a big chunk of their lives into those kids they both raised together. And if we don't invest in the soil of our marriage, the only thing we have to brag about are the kids that we had together instead of the life we get to live together once those children are gone. Because there's a reason a man is to leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Because he's to go invest in his own ground. I'd like to see us return. Because I think it's the heart of God to return to the marriage being valued above all that it's the most important relationship you have in your life. It's better than your friendships and your old high school chums, and it's more important to you than your parents, and it's more important to you than your kids. Because it's the person you've invested your life in so that fruit comes out of that relationship. There's a lot we could say about it. I, I look at every day as an opportunity to fix it. Every day is an opportunity to be better. Every day is an opportunity to put something else into the soil of this relationship and make it matter. And to stop carrying secrets and to put them into that relationship and to put your pain in there and your failure and your hopes and your dreams so that her or his success is your success and her or his failure is yours as well. But you're unified in it. This is a level that they couldn't understand in Matthew 19.10 because they said, gosh, if that's what marriage is like, who do you need to get married? 
Can you see what they had done to marriage? Much like what's happened to us. It needs elevated back to the place where it matters, where it matters so much that it's worth dying for and it's worth fighting for and it's worth scratching and clawing to keep together and to hold on to because it's the one thing that produces true fruit. It doesn't mean we don't take care of our kids and love them and do the best we can for them, of course. But they are not the fullness of what marriage is. Uh, and I think that Jesus was facing off with that. And I think that elevating people to that knowledge and to that understanding is what Jesus was trying to do. I want to land with some more of this from Ezekiel and then pr- bring you back to the New Testament. Let's go a little deeper into their relationship. Ezekiel 16.31 You erected your shrine at the head of every road. You built your high place in every street. Yet you were not like a, you were not like a harlot because you scorned payment. You're an adulterous wife who takes strangers instead of her husband. Men make payment to all harlots, but you made your payments to all your lovers. You, you paid them. Hired them to come to you from all around for your harlotry. I'm, I'm, I'm pointing this out because this is the worst possible marriage that you can ever find described in the Bible. I'm doing this on purpose. And so is Ezekiel. So is God. There's a reason for this. This is as bad as it gets. You're the opposite of other women in your harlotry because no one solicited you to be a harlot. You gave payment, but no payment was given to you. Therefore, you're the opposite. You didn't get paid to have sex. You paid to have it with everything. God goes, you have been spending of yourself on every husband but me. There's been a time or two in all of our lives where this is kind of us. You've been spending your energies on everything but our relationship. You've been spending it on your entertainment. You've been spending it on your pleasure. You've been spending it on yourself. You don't spend it on me. Just a little time with you and I together cultivating this relationship, God says, is all that I'm asking, is what I'm asking of you. 59. Watch how this flip. This is how this chapter ends. Thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done who despise the oath by breaking the covenant. But nevertheless, in spite of all of that, even though You've been a raging harlot for all of Ezekiel 16. I'm going to remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth. I'm going to remember what it was like when you were young. Hear this? I'm going to treat you like I found you. Full of potential. Beautiful. Innocent. Pure. I'm going to go back to the covenant we had at the start. And I'm going to establish that as an everlasting covenant. And then you're going to remember your ways and it's going to, you're going to be ashamed when you receive your older and your younger sisters. I'm going to give them to you for daughters, but not because of my covenant with you. There's a lot we could say at 61. I don't want to get too lost. Watch how it ends. And I will establish my covenant with you and you're going to know that I am Jehovah. That you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your shame. I'm going to close your mouth and I'm going to provide for you an atonement for everything that you have done says the Lord. What is the worst marriage you can ever describe in Ezekiel 16 ends with God saying, I'm going to treat you like I first saw you. I'm going to treat you like you could be, not like you are. In spite of yourself, I'm going to love you. And you're going to be embarrassed. You're going to come back, but I'm going to close your mouth to that. And I'm going to establish with you an everlasting covenant. And it's going to be beautiful. And that's how I'm going to treat you. And then when you get into the New Testament, it sounds a little bit like this, where Paul says in Ephesians 5.30, we are members of his body, his flesh, his bone. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and the two become one. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. It's Christ and the church that text was always talking about. 
You and I just get to reflect it. We hear that. We get to reflect it in natural marriage. When we marry, we get to reflect what we have in him. That the two become one flesh. In reality, I am one, I'm one flesh and Natasha's one flesh. If I hurt my hand, her hand doesn't hurt. But in a very strange way, if I hurt my soul, her soul hurts, vice versa. So there is a connection. It's not necessarily just in the flesh, but when it comes to in the flesh, Paul says it's really talking about Christ and his church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. There's actually a lot from Ephesians 5 we could have put in there about marriage. And I wanted to land there at the end. By the way, did you notice that Paul said that we are of his flesh and of his bone? Which is a strange statement. It feels like he should have said of his flesh and of his blood. But he, he said bone. And one thing that has kind of impressed scholars or baffled them, it's been argued, argued as to what Paul might have meant, but it's interesting that it was very well known in Hebrew prophecy that the bones of Jesus would not be broken on the cross. So important was that that it was reiterated that they did not break his bones, but they stuck a spear in his side and blood and water flowed, that no bones were broken. And Paul chooses to say we are of his flesh and of his bone because his bones never break. And so what, it was another little layer that Paul was putting into the marriage with heaven, going, it never gets broken. It's a lot like the bones in Jesus' body. Just as they didn't break, you and I can't break either. And so that leads me to this long thought. <laughs> the story from the beginning, a lot of this I was just going to say, but I thought, you know, I'm just going to write it. We'll, re we'll work through it and see where we land. The story from the beginning is that God united man and woman so they could be viewed as one. So that they would find out that they need, they could find all that they need in the one they're with. Adam is lacking without Eve. In her... He finds what he is missing. They reproduce to, to fill the earth, not to fulfill one another. Okay, I want to stay there for a second. You can move this away. Um, Adam is lacking without even her. He finds what he's missing. Let me, let me talk about that for a second. Um, it's, it's a fascinating fact that in the book of Genesis, God creates Adam and then realizes that Adam has a problem. And you would say, how could God create man with a problem? But he did it on purpose. This is beautiful. He creates Adam, and then he says Adam lacks. He needs a helper. God intentionally created him so that he would need a helper. And he shows him all the animals of the field. They all walk in front of him, and God has him looking for a helper, and he can't find a helper among the animals. Because if you really want a helper, you're going to have to have something you can contend with something that you can match up with, not something you can dominate. And the beast of the field had already been getting into his hand. So you can't find a helper in something he can control. If you go looking for a spouse for something you can control, you can have a dog or a cat. You want something that challenges you in which you can put everything you are into it and they can put everything they are into you. The only way to get that was to put Adam to sleep, pulls a rib out of his side, gives him a woman. That when he looks at it, he goes, at last I've found someone. That is in my image. They look like me. That this is who I can match with. And it's, it's interesting that in Eve, he finds what's missing in him. And God created him that way. That's something. God didn't have to create him that way, but he did. 
so that we can find fulfillment in someone else and in something else, but ultimately so that we would realize the need we have spiritually for the God in whose likeness and in whose image we are created. Eve is pulled out of Adam in the same way Adam had been pulled out of God so that we would see that we need that which has been pulled out of God, the church. We would need to be a part of something bigger than us so that we could be wedded to Christ. They reproduce to fill the earth, not to fulfill one another. Having children is not the fulfillment of marriage. It's to, re- it's to fill the earth. The fulfillment was in one another. Adam is fulfilled in finding Eve, not in finding Eve and having kids. He's fulfilled in finding Eve because in Eve, he can find a portion of himself. Christ is lacking a body without the church. We fill up what he is missing. He has invested in us. And our fruit is not in making disciples, but in finding our fullness, often called our perfection in the Bible or our completion in the Bible. And we find that in Christ. Look at that phrase. Christ invested in us. He planted in us and we planted in him. And my fruit is not going out and creating new Christians. And God goes, good job. That's what I put you on the earth for is to reproduce. No, he didn't put you on the earth to reproduce other believers. He put you on the earth to find your fullness in Christ. Jesus lifted marriage to the sublime because marriage is reflective of God's commitment to us. If we're passive regarding marriage, we risk being passive regarding our union with Christ. I circled all the way back to that sentence because that's how we started tonight. If they don't understand the importance of marriage, they're never going to get it when he says you are the bride of Christ. It's not going to matter. So he lifts it so that it will mean something to them. I want to, I want to end here. Okay. This is going to be a little bit of a left turn, but that's okay because I think this is a passage that needs talked about at least once in the world and it never gets preached and it never gets taught because we're really scared of this next passage. We don't know what Paul meant. We know the implications are tough and rather than dealing with it, we just ignore it. Like, oh, well, we don't understand what he meant, so we're not going to deal with it at all. And I think now that you're armed with all this info about marriage being elevated, you're ready for it. Because I think this is what Paul's thinking about when he says this in 1 Corinthians 7.10. Now to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord says it. A wife is not to depart from her husband. Even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. That sounds a whole lot like Matthew 5. It's really just Paul sort of reiterating Sermon on the Mount talk. But watch this. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, Lord's not saying it, I am. I didn't hear the Holy Spirit tell me to tell you this, but I'm going to tell you anyway. And so pay attention. This is the part that we sort of just kind of act like it's not in the Bible. If any brother has a wife who doesn't believe and she's willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who doesn't believe, if he's willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. Why? Because the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but they're holy. Oh my goodness. The fact that the child comes from you and you're a believer, kid's okay. He goes, otherwise, your kids would be in trouble. And you know your kids aren't in trouble. Why are your kids not in trouble? Because you're fine. Well, let's take it another step. What about your spouse? He goes, what if your spouse can be sanctified in the same manner in which your children could be sanctified? Fifteen. If the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. How do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Paul respects marriage so much that he says, if you're a believer and they're not, stick it out. He goes, they're in good hands. 
living in the same house with you. I don't know what to mean of it. I don't know how far to take it theologically, but I sure do like the idea that it's so vital that if a believing spouse is pouring themselves into an unbelieving spouse, the unbelieving spouse is sanctified by default of living in the same house with a believing spouse. It tells me marriage means something and being a believer means something. I leave that there. We'll just end on that note. Not entirely sure where to run with that. This passage, this sermon is not to mean, is not to condemn a soul who's been divorced. There'll be a lot of viewers who've been divorced, struggling in their marriage right now. Jesus is not speaking in this passage to the rules behind getting a divorce. Jesus is confronting what they had heard and elevating it. You have heard you can divorce for anything. He says, I say, if you do that, you make it look like the woman's an adulteress because that would be the only thing. And that's a breach of covenant. That's a violence of covenant. So I'm not here to tell people when they do and do not have grounds to be divorced. Okay. We don't derive our righteousness from our ability to keep these things in the Sermon on the Mount, but that doesn't give us the excuse to say they don't matter. If they matter to Jesus, they ought to matter to us. What it does is it tells us that marriage is honorable and worth fighting for. Are there going to come times when it's not tenable to continue on? Yes. Are there going to be times when people should depart from marriages because that it is destructive? I truly believe so. But I'm not the arbiter of what that looks like and that Jesus didn't make us the arbiter. What he did do is have us to elevate it so high that we would fight for it. The same way he fights for us. The same way that he goes, you've cheated on me. He goes, I'm not leaving you. I'm not forsaking you. I'm not telling you what to do in your individual marriages. That's not the role of the Sermon on the Mount, but it is to bring us to raise that tide and to say, it can be better. It should be better. All right. Father, thank you for tonight. We've tried to put it into words in a way that challenges the soul, but also soothes the soul. I hope that, Father, where we have landed is in highlighting the beauty of the relationship that you have with your church, with each of us, not so that we can be condemned in our marriages, but so that we can be encouraged. And in that encouragement, we can learn from you, just like you told us to, learn from me. And as we learn from you, and watch how you do it, all that we put our hands to is elevated. We thank you for that. We thank you for, the, for your daily showing us how to work, on, work this out. In Jesus' name, amen.